Our text is in 2 Chronicles chapter 24. 2 Chronicles 24, and I'll read verses 1 through 14. Joash was seven years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. And Jehoiada took two wives for him, and he had sons and daughters. Now it happened after this that Joash set his heart on repairing the house of the Lord. Then he gathered the priests and the Levites and said to them, Go out to the cities of Judah and gather from all Israel money to repair the house of your God from year to year and see that you do it quickly. However, the Levites did not do it quickly. So the king called Jehoiada the chief priest and said to him, Why have you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and from Jerusalem the collection, according to the commandment of Moses the servant of the Lord, and of the assembly of Israel, for the tabernacle of witness? For the sons of Athaliah, that wicked woman, had broken into the house of God, and had also presented all the dedicated things of the house of the Lord to the Baals. Then at the king's command, they made a chest and set it outside at the gate of the house of the Lord. And they made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to bring to the Lord the collection that Moses, the servant of God, had imposed on Israel in the wilderness. Then all the leaders and all the people rejoiced, brought their contributions, and put them into the chest until all had given. So it was at that time when the chest was brought to the king's official by the hand of the Levites, and when they saw that there was much money, that the king's scribe and the high priest's officer came and emptied the chest and took it and returned it to its place. Thus they did day by day and gathered money in abundance. The king and Jehoiada gave it to those who did the work of the service of the house of the Lord, and they hired masons and carpenters to repair the house of the Lord and also those who worked in iron and bronze to restore the house of the Lord. So the workmen labored, and the work was completed by them. They restored the house of God to its original condition and reinforced it. When they had finished, they brought the rest of the money before the king and Jehoiada. They made from it articles for the house of the Lord, articles for serving and offering, spoons and vessels of gold and silver. And they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord continually all the days of Jehoiada. Let's pray. Father God, we ask you to open our minds to a deeper understanding of your word. Uh, We want to uh, think your thoughts after you. We want to understand uh, all that you would have us to understand from your word. So we pray, Lord, for wisdom, for guidance, for the power of your Holy Spirit at work in our hearts and in our midst. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is the last of the series. Uh, This is the fifth message in marching orders. So the first message was knowing what to do, and that was to make us reasonably certain of a goal or a direction in our life. And so we asked eight questions of this topic. You have to ask these questions of yourselves to try and determine whether what you want to do or whether you're considering doing is what God would have you to do. The second message was wanting what to do. 
And so now you've know, you know what it is that you're to do, and now do you want to do it? Chances are that you do, because our God is kind and gracious to us. And yet we pointed out examples where that wasn't the case, where you had, they had to align their hearts to God's will. They had to make it their own. And so when I speak of knowing the head, I'm thinking more of the intellectual, whereas the wanting... That has to do not just with your affection, although it can be that, but it's your will as well. So it's the affections of your will. The third message was then planning what to do, back to the intellect, coordinating our thoughts and our actions to accomplish this goal. We, the bulk of the message was essentially describing a good plan. How do you know you have a good plan? And so we shared seven aspects from the Bible about how you know a good plan when you see one. The last few minutes, we talked about seven aspects of how to create a good plan. Last week was choosing what to do. And again, we're down here with the will and the affections, avoiding distractions, staying focused. There were really three points in the sermon, although I didn't articulate them that way. But there was testing your resolve, strengthening your resolve, and then fighting off the laziness, all of the distractions that would have you not accomplish the goals that you've set for yourselves. That brings us to today. The original title was Do to Do. I've altered it to What to Do or Delegate. Now, today's message is about ensuring progress, about having progress be something that you desire so much that you just keep seeking it, keep pushing for it, accepting no excuses. And you'll also have to delegate as necessary to accomplish your goals. Again, it's head, heart, head, heart, and now we're at, finally at the action. Uh, David had said earlier, finally we get to the point where we get to do something. And it's true. All of this other stuff, stuff was all kind of in your head. But now you're actually going to put feet. It's where the rubber meets the road. What to do or delegate. To summarize this, it, I would say that it is holding ourselves and everybody that's involved with us in this accountable for progress. You, though... You, as the one that have got to this point through these four steps, you're the one that owns it. It's your responsibility. Someone owns everything. And we all know the problem is that if no one owns something, then it's not owned. It's not going to progress. So there is someone that must own this plan, own this knowledge. And so I'm presuming it's you. You're the one that's listening. You're the one that's taking notes. You own this. Now, you may delegate aspects of that work, and we'll get to that in some detail, but you still own it. Six things to focus on during this phase, this action phase of implementing your plan. The first is that you must monitor progress. We do this with everything. A favorite phrase I have is, what gets measured gets managed. We measure everything in our society now especially. We are a measuring society. And so if you want to, for instance, uh, conserve money, you need to put yourself on a budget, sometimes a tight budget. If you want to stop gaining weight or even lose weight, you need to start monitoring your weight such that you can see it go down as opposed to going up. Fuel economy, I love measuring the fuel economy of a vehicle's distance on a trip. I mean, I just thrive on that, how many miles to here, what's the average speed, all these ways in which we measure things. Investments, 
I think I shared once that I had a coworker out in the Bay Area who could always just punch a button on his Excel spreadsheet and compute his net worth all the time. I mean, this guy was obsessed with money and investments. He's probably retired now because of that, I imagine. If he's not dead, worrying about the loss of any money from day to day. But so what gets measured gets managed, and let's look at the flip side. What does not get measured gets forgotten or overlooked. So if you are serious about implementing this plan, about accomplishing the goals that you set, you really must be measuring it or you will leave off of it. And you really don't want your ideas to die with a whimper like that. You want to end them by choice, by a, a choice of the will, should you no longer want to achieve them, but you don't want them to just fade away. It's not what God would have you to do. So the first one is monitor progress. The second one, stay focused. Don't get distracted. I love illustrations from the Civil War. Oh, I'm sorry, the War of Northern Aggression, for some of you. And so, uh, although I do tend to be pretty critical of the South, I'm critical of both sides, I guess. I'm just a critic at heart. I remember reading a book long ago, and I, I have no idea. I didn't even attempt to look for it. But I remember in the reading of the book, though, we were up to the summer of 1864, and Jefferson Davis was fretting over the imminent loss of Atlanta. He did not want to lose Atlanta. And yet the general that he had in command of the Army of the Tennessee, Joseph Johnston, kept giving ground to Sherman. And it was upsetting to Jefferson Davis. And he kept trying to get Joe Johnston to commit to holding Atlanta, and Joe Johnston wouldn't do that. He was not allowing his army of the Tennessee to be destroyed by Sherman's army. Well, Jefferson Davis finally had enough, and he put in charge of the army of the Tennessee John Bell Hood, who in a very short time destroyed the army of the Tennessee, lost Atlanta, and allowed Sherman to basically march across the South unopposed. What happened was Jefferson Davis's fault. He was the guy that made the decision to replace Joe Johnston. Now, it still might have occurred. Johnston might have still lost at Atlanta. He might have still lost the Army of the Tennessee. But most people, when they study the characters of the two men, would say, no, Johnston probably wouldn't have lost his army. He was a very cautious man. And at this point, Lincoln, the North, was under incredible pressure to end this war. And there was McClellan, who was the Democratic candidate, who, would, who was very likely going to beat Lincoln. And so if they had managed to protect Atlanta through the election in early November, many think that they could have won the election. The Democrats, McClellan would have got in there and most likely ended the war. He was kind of a pacifist at heart. That was why Lincoln was very critical of him. Both times he was commanding the entire army of the North. Now... Stay focused, don't get distracted. Jefferson Davis, during this period leading up to the loss of Atlanta, was writing Joe Johnston constantly, complaining about everything. Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? What happened here? What happened there? Jefferson Davis is looking backwards and at Joe Johnston so much that he ignored the reality of what they were facing. When he put Hood in charge of the army, and Hood was aggressive, Yes, he was very aggressive. He went on to lose his army very quickly in several battles that he lost. 
So Jefferson Davis was forgetting the goal. He was acting out of his feuding with Joe Johnston. And he made a poor decision. And so we want to not make poor decisions when we're in the midst of attempting to accomplish these big long-term goals. We don't want to allow a petty feud to destroy what it is that we understand of a situation. I don't know that it wasn't Jefferson Davis' intention to just punish Joe Johnston for what he felt he was doing in disobeying his orders to defend Atlanta. But it ended up costing him Atlanta and perhaps the war. The third thing, so monitor progress, stay focused, don't get distracted. The third thing, don't make excuses. And if you've delegated, don't accept excuses. It was MacArthur in 1951 writing to a congressman that said, there is no substitute for victory. Too many of us are satisfied with a reasonable excuse for why we could not do something as opposed to attempting to get it done, regardless of the opposition that we face, regardless of the difficulties that arise in preventing it. You don't want to raise your children to rely upon excuses in life. If they share excuses with you, always test them in it. Train them to look for the solutions to the problems that they're dealing with. We don't have to look far to see where excuses began in Scripture. Genesis 3. Why have you hidden from me? The woman you gave me gave me of the fruit and I ate. So then God looks to the woman. The serpent deceived me and I ate. They're just making excuses. We all can have, at times, very valid excuses. They might be flimsy at the other extreme, but sometimes we have very valid excuses. But do you want to succeed, or do you just want to have an excuse as to why you failed? For many people, the latter is just as convenient as the former. And so we Christians must know that this is unacceptable to our God. We must fight a good fight. We must do all that we can to succeed. Excuses have us looking backwards all the time instead of looking forwards. Seek solutions for success, not excuses for failure. So that's the third point. Don't make excuses and don't accept excuses. Point four, deal with problems. Problems will arise. They will always arise, and you can't always foresee what it is that you'll have issues with, with achieving some goal. And yet, problems can go undetected for way too long a period of time. Your measuring, step one, monitoring progress, should reveal problems to you in a timely manner. But oftentimes, problems are brought to our attention by people. And yet, if those people are not rewarded for bringing this problem to our attention, if instead we shoot them dead, then no one else will bring these problems to our attention in the future. So if you tend to punish the messenger, you will then not have people willing to share the truth with you, not willing to share what's really going on. And that is the problem across the world in big companies because by the time data gets up to those that are making decisions, strategic decisions at the high level, it's been so sanitized 
of truth. They just want to tell people what they want to hear. And as long as you're rewarding a culture that does that, that's the way it's going to go. And so you must not shoot the messenger. You have to accept the reality that there will be problems and want to accept them. I remember another thing, too, is don't assume that all problems are either small or big. You have to figure that out. I had just been hired into NASA as a Lisp machine administrator, and I was probably not there more than a week or two when they called me over to this uh, project. And I had to go out into this warehouse-like environment, and they have this Lisp machine that's here, and it's running a knowledge tool called Key, a knowledge engineering environment. And the fellow that's talking to me is a doctor. I mean, and so he's telling me about this problem that he has, that they build this big elaborate model. It takes them like an hour or two to build this big elaborate model. But then sometimes, soon after they get it built, this error comes up. And then they have to reboot and start all over again. So I went there. I said, tell me the next time it happens, because they had already shut it down. They called me like the next day. I went over there, and I take it into the debugger, and I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And I mean, it's a very involved system. I couldn't figure it out, but I asked them to let me know next time. They let me know the next time, probably again the next day. And I look at it, and I said, what does this problem do? I mean, why is it a problem for you? And he looked at me with this blank look on his face. And I clicked a button to make the problem go away. And I said, now, what is the problem? And he couldn't tell me. He had always assumed that when that appeared, that it was catastrophic, and it wasn't. It was essentially benign. And so I was, from that moment on, a hero with this guy. I mean, I had, I had shown him that this is not a problem. Now, they had other problems manifest that weren't as easily solved, but still, you must not assume the severity based on whatever someone is telling you. It's easy to do that. We just kind of check out our minds, but yet you look at it critically. You just say, okay, just how bad is this? That was deal with problems. The fifth is seek opportunities. Now, some of you who are in industry might recognize that I've used a synonym Problems are merely opportunities, after all, in this modern world that we live in. But they're not. That's a lie. And it causes us then to actually not see opportunities when we're facing them. And so we ought not conflate the term problem and opportunity. Opportunities are things that are working, but they are not necessarily working as well as they could work. And so there's opportunities for improvement. For instance, if we could do the same job, let's say you're in a business and you have competitors like every business does, if you can do a job that you need done in the same time with the same number of people but in half the money, then it's a big win. Or same money but half the people. You know what I mean? It's just you then free up your resources to do other things. All employers, all managers, anybody tasked with doing anything on this earth is always having to wrestle with these three things. And we then tend, within our industries, to develop patterns of behavior, patterns of thinking, that preclude us from seeing opportunities when they bite us in the butt. And that's what you have to become sensitive to, is the fact that the opportunities are there. You just need to look for them. You have to see them when they arise.
in a book that I love called The Adventures of Jonathan Gullible. Has anybody else read that book? It's been around a long time. Um, there is a chapter, and it's, a, it's about this young man who kind of falls asleep, gets lost, and he wakes up in this world where everything is topsy-turvy. And one of the things that he stumbles upon is someone is running for their life, and then they're being chased. And here, what this person has done is he's chopped down a tree with an axe. And so he's chopped down a tree within like an hour that normally the tree whackers, and they have to get like two or three or more tree whackers on any tree, will take a day or two to knock down. And so this person that used an axe on a tree is hated, despised, because he's transformed tree chopping down. And all the tree whackers are after him. They're after his head. Now, theoretically, I have loved economics for 20 years. I've loved Austrian economics. Now, I love it actually in a much even realer way, a more real way. That's not a word. Kids, don't, don't quote me. <laughs> but so, opportunities can be disruptors in our world. That means some people will hate them, but the people that benefit from the disruption love them. They're the ones that introduced them. For instance, right now at Union Pacific Railroad, they're adopting what's called PSR. I've mentioned that to a few of you, Precision Scheduled Railroading. This was adopted with the Canadian Northern and the Canadian Pacific Railroads 20 years ago, and what it means is that they've simplified their operations and they have cut their staff by 30% as a result of that. And so these railroads began operating at a much more efficient level than the U.S. Class I railroads. And the Class I railroads in the U.S. said, well, that's fine for Canada. They're different, those Canucks. It, don't, it won't work here. Well, then the CSX back east adopted it three years ago, and it is working there. And so then the Norfolk Southern and the UP have adopted it. And it's what is leading UP to let a lot of people go. And that was one of the reasons that I was let go, is that there's this basically widespread effect on eliminating employees because they're simplifying operations. And so I am a victim of creative destruction, as it's called in economics. It was Joseph Schumpeter that introduced that term 100 years ago. I love that term. I still love that term. I don't hate Austrian economics because they've adopted PSR at UP. I love the fact that I still have stock in UP, and it's rising in value now. <laughs> they're becoming a more valuable company because they're becoming more efficient. And they're freeing people like me up to do other things. Starve, maybe, if I become a lazy <laughs> bum. Right? If I'm a lazy bum, I deserve to starve. So now, that's number five, seek opportunities. Number six, this one will go on, but let me just introduce it. Delegate as necessary. This is what Gary would assume my text would be, Exodus 18, the Jethro principle, Jethro. And so uh, this is a classic example of delegation uh, contained in the Bible. And really, it, it's, it is excellent. I mean, it would be a wonderful topic. I'm sure we've probably preached on it at points. But uh, let me turn to that uh, section and read this is from Exodus 18, and I'll read starting at verse 13. Now Jethro has come, and he's witnessed what he considers a very poorly structured day in Moses' life. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning till evening. 
When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, what is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me and I judge between one and another and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you do is not good. This is what you have to like about elderly people. They just get right to the heart of the matter. Time is short. I may be dead in a few minutes. And so I'm going to tell you what I, you need to hear. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out, for this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people, so that you may bring the difficulties to God, and you shall teach them the statutes and the laws, and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all these people will also go to their place in peace. And so I just want to highlight a few of the things that he said. What you're doing is not good. You've got a problem. You and these people will wear yourselves out. This is too much for you. You're not able to perform it by yourself. You must share this responsibility. Verse 22 says, they will bear the burden with you. And that's the heart of this delegation. They will bear the burden with you. Now, I want to share three uh, aspects of delegation, truths about it. First, delegation is built right into creation. God has designed it for our good. Delegation is God's design. Man is responsible for the earth. Psalm 115 verse 16 says this, the heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of men. Now, you might think in hearing that and not hearing any other verses that God has given earth to the children of men, but you would be wrong. This is a qualified statement. Genesis 2.15 says this, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Adam was appointed a steward of God's creation. God retains ownership of the earth. Psalm 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. Twice, Paul quotes this in 1 Corinthians 10. And there are two verses almost identical to it in the Old Testament, Exodus 19, 5 and Psalm 50, verse 12. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4 said this, the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets over it the lowest of men. God not only owns it, but he actively administers it as well. Leviticus 25, 23, the land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. God owns it all. Nebuchadnezzar, didn't own it. All these powerful kingdoms and kings and nations didn't own it. Even God's own people 
didn't own it. God alone owns it. We are all strangers and sojourners. So delegation is God's design, and we live in the midst of this huge delegation project that God has given to us. The second is that delegation is essential to success. It is not an optional thing. There is only so much that individuals can do. When we are falling behind, sometimes we are encouraged to redouble our efforts. When you watch television programs, it's always interesting, like Star Trek, you know, Scotty, you make it so, I, ha I need more time, Captain. You don't have more time, Scotty. Do it now. And they always succeed. It really does give us this false perspective on how long it takes to repair starships. I think it's going to take longer myself. I, I think we'll be stuck there for days, if not longer. And the, and the enemies will shoot us and we'll die. And then this human experiment will end and some alien race will take over. I'm sorry. That's, that's another lecture. So now, delegation is essential. We must multiply our efforts, not redouble them. Redouble them makes it, you just have to work harder. That's all there is to it. No, you must multiply your efforts. It's the Jethro principle. It's the Timothy principle. It's having to build what you have into others. Now, there are five, there are lots of common excuses for not delegating. Let me share five. And I'll give you the rebuttal that you should have. But it only takes me a few minutes. This is someone that doesn't want to delegate this. Yes, but the minutes add up, and you have only so many minutes. I know exactly what's needed. Again, this is the person that knows what to do. You know, this is the best reason that you ought to train somebody else to do it. Because if you know exactly what needs doing, the chances are likely that nobody else does. And this is why businesses fail. Because they have one person in this key role, and suddenly they're out of commission for a few days or a few weeks, and the business falls apart. So that is a good reason to train someone else, such that you don't have that single point of failure. The third, training someone else will take too long. And yet, this is the very essence of training other people. You have to invest time in order to then recoup that time. Training does take time. And you might not have it day one. You might not have it the first moment. But you have to work it into your schedule to where people are valued. You're taking the time to be with them. We all know this phrase, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. Feed a man and you feed him for a day. But you teach him to fish. He learns how to fish and now he can feed himself. Now, isn't it going to take you longer to teach that man how to fish than to give him one? Yes. But that's the essence of it. You're investing time, and you will recoup the benefit later because you will now have people that are then able to do that. Again, the Timothy principle, training people who will train people. Number four, I've tried that before, and it didn't work. This is really a catch-all. And so you can ask many questions here. When did you do it? How did you do it? Who did you do it with? Did you really do your due diligence in doing it well? Is the person that you did it with, were they really responsible? Did they take it seriously? Um, you really have to investigate why it didn't work that other time. That doesn't mean it won't work ever. It just means that one time. Again, it's anecdotal. The fifth, this is too important to screw up. Now, there is an aspect of truth here that I want to comment on, um, but maybe, yeah, here, here in a few minutes. But uh, yet, 
you, as the one that has to make these decisions, has to determine when and what to delegate, you have to make a determination as to what is too important. And if you push that line way down here, and most of what you do is above it, it's all too important, well, then you're limited. You are stunted in what you can do. You cannot multiply yourself then. You, by definition, are saying, no, I don't want to share. I'm a selfish child. I want it. I want it. I want it. No, you have to teach people. You have to get them to engage with you, and you can't expect perfection. As parents, we all should be excellent at this. Not all of us are, but our children should all be trained to do things. I don't care how old they are. They're five years old. They're eight years old. They're 12 years old. They should each be trained to do things that are within their capacity. You're training them to be adults, after all. You can't just do everything for them until they're 18 and then eject them from your home expecting them to do stuff and be successful. No, you, that's why they're in your home, to be trained. And they have to then take on this responsibility. You help them. You don't require them to succeed right out of the gate. You're tolerant and patient with them. This is what parenting's all about. So really, all of us as parents should be fairly good at this whole delegation thing. Now... Delegation must be done right. That's the third point. Delegation must be done right. There are two extremes. People, sometimes when they are forced to delegate just through the tyranny of the urgent, they will sometimes take something that they don't understand that well, that they don't enjoy that well. And for business owners, that's often the finances, sadly. And so here, their passion is not money. My passion is making this product. My passion is doing this or that. So they hire somebody to be their head guy, to take over, take over all this stuff. And yet then they lose control of the finances. They lose insight into it. They've abdicated it. They've really not handed it to them with caveats. I want to know this, this, that, and the other. They just let them take it over and make it their own. And the fellow that had founded uh, Big, Big Production, Big Idea Productions, uh, that Phil Vischer, um, he made that mistake. You could see it. He saw it developing. He saw this train wreck coming of his company because he had hired these people and he had basically abdicated his role in what they're supposed to be doing. Alarm bells are going off in his head because he sees the money that they're spending and they're not recouping it with an income. And yet he can't get them to see reality. They're confident. They're saying, oh, it's fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine until it's not fine. And then suddenly the company is going under. And so that's when he had abdicated too much, he had delegated too much, and he'd, he'd not retained uh, ownership and res ultimate responsibility for it. God does. God has given us all this responsibility on the earth, but he's retained ownership of the earth. And he's ultimately responsible. And he took Nebuchadnezzar out when he didn't like what he was doing, made him eat grass like a cow. And only when he was humbled did he put him back in. God has that power, and he exercises that power. So delegation must be done right. We can't just abandon it, and yet we can't also micromanage. We want good people. And so we hire this good person that's supposedly very skilled at this, that, or the other, and yet we never let them do anything because we're constantly watching them. Oh, that's not how that's done. That's not how that's done. We're not giving them the freedom in any way to fail. I remember reading years ago about an IBM executive. He had made a mistake. It was a product line, and he'd made a mistake, and it cost the company a billion dollars. I mean, IBM, I guess, has a billion here, a billion there. Pretty soon you're talking about real money. And uh, the head of IBM calls this guy in, and he's thinking, okay, I'm, you know, here's my resignation. You know, I'm out the door. And the fellow said, are you kidding me? 
we just spent a billion dollars educating you. So he wasn't fired. I mean, the, the big boss agreed that what he had done could have been a little better, but he wasn't just going to get rid of him and punish him. He had now learned this valuable lesson, and he's now a more valuable manager. Now, don't you want to go work at IBM now if you can squander a billion dollars and still keep your job? But so, I don't know, maybe that whole, whole arm went dead, I don't know. But it's just, it does show, though, that there was a patience on the part of the senior executive in allowing this man to learn the lessons that would make him much better down the road. Delegation must be clear. What is included, what is excluded? Let me give you a few questions as examples of what should be considered when you're talking about delegating something or considering it anyway. What specifically is to be accomplished? What is my role here? What can I do? What can I not do? By when must it be done? What will be the measure of success? How will you know if I've succeeded? How will I know if I've succeeded? Who can I rely upon for assistance? How much money will I have to get the job done? That type of thing. These are all good questions to address when you're dealing with delegating a big chunk of your work. Now, I have not uh, tied a lot of this into the word, but you'll see now why, because I'm going to return to the text that I read at the beginning, and we're going to show how Joash employed all of these things in, in what he had done in repairing the temple. Let me give you a little background first about Joash. Joash is this baby who was saved from the murderous Athalia by his aunt, Jehoshabeth. So I've got to mention Je Jethro and Jehoshabeth today. And so uh, Jehoshabeth, Joash's aunt, saved him from being murdered. Now what had happened is Jehu had killed the king of, uh, of Israel, capital Samaria. He'd killed him. And Ahaziah bebopping along in his chariot towards Samaria because they're all... They're all related at this point. I mean, Ahab's line has just infiltrated. Omri's line has infiltrated both kingdoms. So Ahaziah is killed as well. Jehu's like, yeah, let's kill him too. So both kings die, the king of Judah and the king of Israel. Athaliah sees this as opportunity. She kills all the male heirs in all of Jerusalem. And yet Jehoshabeth saves this one, Joash. So now I want to talk a little bit about this. Jehoiada... There, there are various people in on this conspiracy. Jehoiada, the high priest, is one of them. By this time, he's very old. He's almost 100 years old. Now, Joash becomes king at seven years old. And then in our text, it said that, it said that Jehoiada took two wives for him, and he had sons and daughters. So now there are time clues as to how old. So we know he's not going to be getting married at seven, I would hope. But still, they would get married young. So he's probably getting married at like 14, 15, something like that. He has two wives. He has sons and daughters. Time has passed. But so after this, and so I'm guessing that Joash by this time is probably in his late teens, early 20s, Joash set his heart to repairing the house of the Lord. He was trained by Jehoiada, and the Scripture says that he did what was right all the days of Jehoiada. Now he instructs the priests and the Levites to gather money to repair the temple. This is in verse 5. And he says, do it quickly. However, the Levites did not do it quickly. 
Now, we aren't given a definition of quickly, but it did say that he, was, he told them year by year. So Joash had expected it to take time. Years have passed, and nothing has happened, or very little has happened. Now, 2 Kings 12.6 tells us, and this is the parallel passage. You all know Kings and Chronicles parallel one another. And so we know from 2 Kings 12.6, now it was... So, by the 23rd year of King Jehoash, that the priests had not repaired the damages of the temple. Now, the 23rd year is speaking probably of his reign, not of his age, and so now he's 30 years old. He was made the boy king at seven, and now he's 30, and yet they still haven't repaired the temple. It's been at least five years, I'd say closer to 10, and they have not repaired the temple. He's ticked off, and I think rightfully so. So the king called Jehoiada the chief priest and said to him, Why have you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and from Jerusalem the collection? So that was part of the solution that Jehoash had said. He wanted money to be collected by the Levites. And you remember the Levites are spread throughout all of Judah. And so the Levites live in all these cities. And so the, the Levites were the ones that were supposed to be out there collecting this special collection in order to repair the temple. And Joash is accusing Jehoiada of not having done this, not having overseen this. And then he just has this little caveat in verse 7, for the sons of Athaliah, that wicked woman, had broken into the house of God. They had intentionally destroyed the temple, and they had probably profaned all of the dedicated things of the house of the Lord. So now, his initial plan then, that took him years of time out of his running the kingdom has not worked. And he begins this with, why? Why, Jehoiada? Why has this not worked? Why have you not required the Levites to collect this money? We don't know a lot of the details here. When you read both I, the uh, Second Kings episode or this one, you don't really see the solution to the problem. I believe what had happened is that Rampant, rampant idolatry during this period, rampant infiltration of Ahab and Omri's line. And you had these Levites who had been corrupted by this. And now they're given this opportunity potentially to get this money. Why should I bring this money into the temple and give it to the priests? I can hold on to it. I believe there was probably at least some graft going on. But whatever it was, the process was breaking down, and Joash had stipulated this was to be the process. But the remedial plan succeeds. We don't know if Jehoiada ever gave the king an answer that he liked, but we know the solution. Verse 8, then at the king's command, they made a chest and set it outside at the gate of the house of the Lord. And when you look at the comparable text, it says, Jehoiada the priest took a chest, bored a hole in its lid, and set it beside the altar. So you see, both the king and Jehoiada, the high priest, were involved in this solution. Jehoiada probably suggested what they do, and the king adopted it. And so now they have this chest that's in the temple, and a proclamation goes out. Let me see. I forget exactly where that is. But anyway, they, they uh, had a proclamation go out through all, all the land. They then respond with enthusiasm. And so the people begin bringing in all of this money. 
Note that the Levites were largely bypassed in this second attempt to collect this money. It was coming directly from the leaders of the people to the priests at the temple, and the, the money then was handled by the Levites, but only they would let them know when it was full. A representative of the king and a representative of the high priest would then take the chest, they would bag it up, they would count it, and they would, they would give it directly to the people that were responsible for making the repairs in the temple. So they kind of cut out this whole collection fiasco. Now, what had happened? What had happened is the first process had broken down. Joash had began by asking, why? Why has it failed? But somehow, he and Jehoiada, instead of trying to just lay blame, devised a new method that was better than the other method, and they implemented it, and it was successful. There are two differences that I want to highlight in what happened between the first and the second attempt. First was what I'd mentioned. The Levites were key to Joash's first solution. The Levites were to go out and gather up this money and get it in and, put it and deposit it at the temple. So see, he had essentially decentralized the collection or centralized it at least among the uh, Levites only. What he did with the second attempt, though, is he decentralized it. He's like, we're not even going to get the Levites involved. Everybody. And he sent it out to the whole kingdom, all the leaders. They now have the freedom to just bring the money into the temple themselves. And they did. They responded joyfully, joyously. Let me read uh, verses 8 through 10 again. At the king's command, they made a chest, set it outside at the gate of the house of the Lord. They made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to bring to the Lord the collection that Moses, the servant of God, had imposed on Israel in the wilderness. Then all the leaders and all the people rejoiced, brought their contributions, and put them into the chest until all had been given. Now, note also that in the first solution, the Levites were supposed to bring the money, but then the priests were going to oversee the, uh, the uh, repairs to the temple. There didn't appear to be a centralization of repair. The priests were just given the, the uh, assignment loosely or generally, maybe even decentralized. But it appears to me that the, while the money collection has been decentralized, it's been given to the responsibility of people themselves, and so the chest is filling up day by day. Note the speed at which this is occurring. He had originally, in his first attempt, allowed years to pass. But now he's made this proclamation, and he's, now that chest is filling up like every few days. They're able to get all this work done very quickly. He had decentralized repairs now in the first one, and now he's centralized repairs. He has these workers responsible for doing it. You've got all this money. We've counted it. This is what you get to do it. And they're ecstatic, and they get more money than they need. They also furnish the temple. Originally, it said that they would not do that. They were only going to repair the temple, but now they've furnished it. They've equipped it. Day by day, money in abundance. What Joash had done is he'd learned from his first mistake, and he made it, uh, he corrected the errors in the second one. He didn't give up. He wasn't managing it effectively at that point. This, the six points were this, remember, monitor progress. Initially, he didn't monitor progress very actively, nor did he require Jehoiada to. It was years later that he checked back with them. Perhaps Joash was distracted during that period. Jehoiada, we can't see that he made any excuses, but they dealt with the problem, certainly, in the second attempt. 
monitor progress. What gets measured gets managed. Don't get distracted. Stay focused on making the progress. This is something valuable. Joash wanted this. Don't make or accept excuses. There's no substitute for victory, for success. Deal with problems. Don't shoot the messenger. Even though he started out being critical of Jehoiada, it would appear, he accepted, in my opinion, Jehoiada's wisdom that came with age. He was very old. That might have been why Jehoiada was not as effective at this. He was a very old man by this time. And they sought opportunities to correct this. We can do this. Not all disruption is bad. They've learned a lot. They could get around the Levites potentially failing in their part of this. And then delegate as necessary. He maintained the delegation, got the priests involved. The workmen were trusted, it says, to do this. They didn't even keep accounts with the workmen because they trusted the workmen to do what was right. Delegate as necessary. They will bear the burden with you. So they don't entirely remove it from your shoulders, but they help you with it. That's why we have six pallbearers at a funeral, right? They're sharing that burden. No one person could do that. Maybe Samson. But so we need to share the burdens and allow others to help us. Now this is marching orders, and it is God who has begun a good work in each of us. And there are aspects of your work that you will require plans for in life. And you ought to seek to develop those plans. Uh, God has planted desires in your heart, and you want to fulfill them. Be diligent. Be intentional. Plan and act in faith. And fight off the laziness. Redeem the time such that you'll be successful at achieving your plans. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your scripture that is so clear and gives us such a rich uh, inventory of stories from which we see uh, both failure and success, and we derive then what it is that you would have us to do. We thank you, Lord, for the power of your word, your Holy Spirit, applying it to our minds and hearts. We know that it will transform this world. We thank you that we are a part of this, that you have adopted us to your family, and that we will uh, see you in glory. We pray, Lord, that you will tell us, well done, good and faithful servant. We know that you have given us, uh, our, uh, in our hearts, you have given us these ideas, things that you want us to pursue, and have us not act in cowardice or uh, lack faith in pursuing what it is that you would have us do, Lord, but to step out in faith and do all that is necessary to accomplish these that you have put in our hearts. We thank you and ask you to bless us. In Jesus' name, we give you thanks. Amen.